It was the biggest night of the year in a little town called Cornwall. It was the night of the annual Christmas pageant. It's an especially big deal for the children in town. They get to try out for the roles in the Christmas story, right? Everybody wants a part, which leads to the problem of Harold. Harold really wanted to be in the play as well, but he was, well, kind of slow and simple kid and clumsy, too. He'd been in some of these plays before. One year, Harold's angel's wings caught fire, nearly burning down the whole church. Next year, he was King Herod. He tripped on the royal rug, toppled the three wise men on their heads. Of course, this year, the other kids begged the director, please, please don't let Harold ruin another Christmas play. Well, she was in a quandary. She knew Harold would be crushed if he didn't have a part, but was terrified that he would mess up that town's magical moment there, Christmas. Sure, he was simple and clumsy, but he loved Jesus with all his heart. Well, finally, she thought she had the perfect solution. I'll cast him as the innkeeper, right? The one who turns Mary and Joseph away the night that Jesus is to be born. Right. All, all he's got to do is open the door and deliver one line. What harm could he do? Well, the night of the pageant, the church was packed as usual. The Christmas story unfolded according to plan. Angels singing Joseph's dream, the trip to Bethlehem. Finally, Joseph and Mary arrived at the door at the inn there in Bethlehem, looking appropriately tired, haggard. Joseph knocked on the door and Harold was there to open the door. So far, so good. Joseph asked this question on cue. Do you have room for us tonight? Moment of truth. Harold came through. He delivered the line with professional timing and elocution. Better than I just said right there. Harold said, be gone. We have no room for the likes of you. Close the door. Director heaved a sigh of relief. But then, as Mary and Joseph disappeared into the night, the people on the first couple rows could see a tear welling up in Harold's eyes. His lip began to quiver. Suddenly, the door flew open. Wait, he said. (laughs) What on earth? That word has never been before seen in the Christmas story. Wait, he said, don't go, Joseph. Bring Mary back. You can have my room. Some of them went, oh, most of them went, oh, man. All bedlam broke loose. Kids crying, parents shouting. Harold had ruined another Christmas story. But as the the director wiped away his tears and some of hers, she said, well, perhaps Harold is the one here who really told the Christmas story. For, for what is Christmas if we have no room for Jesus? I've entitled this message, No Room for Him? Question mark. So I have a question for all of us here in the room. There's actually, you've heard me say this before, whenever the church gets together, whenever the people of the church together, chances are there's at least two audiences, real, really only two audiences. That is the, the believer and the non-believer, the Christian and the non-Christian, the saints and the ain'ts. 
No matter who you are, you, be, you belong in one of those two categories. And it occurs to me, I can ask you the exact same question today. In kind of emphasizing two different things. Let me speak to, to today. I want to speak to both the non-Christian and the Christian. I want to ask the same question. What prevents you from allowing Jesus room in your heart? Now, for the non-Christian, that means a, a much bigger question. And what I do is what I hope to do is to use the various parts of the Christmas story to refute the arguments that are in your head that I'm I'm no, I know at least some of them. So I hope to do that for the non-Christian. But for the Christian, the question is the same. But I mean this, what prevents you, what prevents me from allowing making room for him in your schedule? In your Christmas season, what, what prevents you this morning from perhaps enjoying him, worshiping him like those wise men did so many years ago? OK, so first, non-Christian, that doesn't mean the rest of you Christians can, you know, walk out the door. You have to patiently listen. Be winsome citizens. In case you were paying attention last week. Non-Christian, what prevents you from making room for Jesus in your heart, in your life? My guess is the first first thing that might be an argument in your head is that you think the Christmas story is just a story. It's just a fairy tale. Uh, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, Jesus, it's 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 a myth to you. Perhaps you are not seeing you're not getting the whole picture. Maybe you are like the little girl. Came home one December afternoon from school and she was very upset with her, her teacher. Mom says, well, honey, what's the problem? Well, the teacher had us make these Christmas drawings. And she said we could just draw about anything in the Christmas story. And she didn't like mine. Mom says, well, let me see the picture. After a few moments, mom says, well, honey, it's a beautiful picture. But it's an airplane. What, what in the world does that have to do, honey, what, with the Christmas story? The, the daughter says, Mom, it's a picture of Jesus' family's flight into Egypt. Well, Mom says, oh, OK, all right. Um, well, but, but who's in the front here? Who's, who's in the, the, the cockpit of the plane? Mom, don't you know anything? It's Pontius, the pilot. <laughs> Oh, okay. I see, honey. Uh, and, and I see, I see Pontius the pilot. I see Mary and Joseph, and I see the, the baby Jesus. Um, but who's that really big guy in the back? Mom, it's Round John Virgin. <laughs> Unbeliever here this morning. Is it possible that you haven't really listened carefully to the Christmas story? And so you've just assumed that it's just the story. Is it possible that you haven't got the whole picture? I want to show you as best I can, as quickly as I can, uh, what I think should help you understand that that argument's kind of weak. Um, look at Luke chapter 2. You have it? Luke chapter 2. And I think you're going to see that there are real, verifiable facts, historical facts, attached all throughout this this story. First of all, uh, look at Luke chapter two, verse one. 
you'll see not only is this historically accurate, but it's um, nothing much has changed. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. <laughs> That's the old King James. See, verse two in the new King James says this census, it was a census to to determine uh, how they might tax the, the folks. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing, governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Notice all of these facts, things that can be verified. Verse four, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. It mentions there Caesar Augustus. It mentions Quirinius governing Syria. It mentions Nazareth, Judea, Bethlehem, all real places, all real time. It mentions Joseph's lineage. And it will really help you, I think, to look back at Luke chapter one, verse three. And remember that for Luke, he's writing this for a very distinguished uh, fellow. You see Luke chapter one, verse three. He says, of all the things I, I began to write to you um, King, what, Acidophilus? No, no. The, Theophilus? <laughs> the, the idea is that, think about this, Luke, is, he's, a, he's a physician. It's not smart if you're going to spend one whole gospel writing to just start making up uh, facts and figures, right? The, historically, guys, this is no fairy tale, right? This really happened. Um, even... Even uh, secular historians believe that uh, Jesus uh, was born and that he lived and that he died. Right. The question then becomes, perhaps with the resurrection, if if I pique your interest, but you're not convinced, just write down for me. First Corinthians 15. We don't have time to exposit that. But if you'll write down first Corinthians 15, you will see that Paul says, look, there was 500 witnesses when this uh, man, Jesus, was resurrected. OK, so historically, there's no fairy tale, um, but also. Turn to Matthew chapter two, and I want you to to answer me a question, unbeliever. Not out loud. Um, but look at Matthew two, which is what some people forget is part of the Christmas story. It it is the reason that Jesus did take that flight to Egypt. Look at verse 16, Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. According to the time which he had determined from the wise men, then he fulfilled what was spoken, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation. Weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here's my question. If you were creating a fairy tale, one that people 2000 years from now could just look at and feel good about and get the warm fuzzies. Would you include a part about babies being murdered by an evil King. Either this is the absolute worst fairy tale ever. Or it's true. So if it's true, unbeliever. What is it that prevents you from making room for him? Maybe another argument for you is that. 
It just seems like Christianity is too restricting. If, if I become a Christian, it's too restricting for me. Interesting that Jesus said he came to set the captives free. The exact opposite of your argument. The, the baby in the manger is the one who grew up to say these words. If the son, he's speaking of himself, the son of God, if the son will set you free, you will be free indeed. He said that to the Pharisees and they got uh, all hot and bothered and said, what do you mean calling us saying that we're not free? We're, we have Abraham as our father. You tell us we're not free. And he said, Jesus did. Look, whoever commits sin. Is a slave to sin. And in that context, he said, I have come to set you free from the bondage of sin. Now, you can find that in Matthew chapter one. If you want to turn there, verse 21, you can see that's right from the beginning in the Christmas story. He's come to set us free. The angel was speaking to Joseph, Matthew one, verse 21, and she will bring forth a son speaking of Mary and you shall call his name Jesus, that means God saves, for he will save or deliver or rescue his people from their sins. If the, if the thing is preventing you from allowing him, bringing him into your heart and your life, is that you think it's just too restricting, I dare say you have it backwards. The reason that he came was to set us free. This baby born in, in Bethlehem, laid in the manger, did not come to restrict you, but to set you free. So what prevents you? Well, maybe and there may be others, but I wanted to tackle a few of the big arguments. Maybe it's this, this third one. Maybe you just feel like you're not good enough. You're not good enough to become a Christian. First thought comes to mind, look around. <laughs> but maybe you don't feel like you're, you're just clean enough or, or right enough to come into his presence, to have any kind of relationship with him because you know what you're like inside. Well, I have really good news for you. If you're willing to listen, this same Bible full of facts, full of historically verifiable um, data, the same Bible that speaks of this baby that came to set men free, says that this little baby born in Bethlehem, laid in that manger, was born to be a friend of sinners. Again, we sang it this morning in a rescue for sinners. The friend of sinners, and that includes, if you look at the record of Jesus' life, prostitutes, drunkards, even tax collectors. All of them, friend of sinners. In case you didn't see it, it's also in the Christmas story. Interesting to me that all of the, the origins of all the things that we love about Jesus, if you look, you can find them there in the Christmas story. Look at, uh, I believe it's Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. It's either Luke or Matthew 2. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of a house and lineage of David. What that means is, 
that though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? Where, is, where did he grow up? His hometown was Nazareth. That's, those were his stomping grounds, right? That's where he was... Uh, I want to say he was shaped culturally, but I'm sure he shaped the culture where he was, right? That was his, his hometown, his stomping grounds, Nazareth. If you asked anyone there, hey, where's that Jesus guy from? They wouldn't have said Bethlehem because he was just born there. But he, was, he grew up in Nazareth. Do you guys remember anything about Nazareth? Remember when Philip first heard about Jesus? Remember what he said? John chapter 1, verse 46. I'm sorry, not Philip. Nathaniel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth. And he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. I would say the same thing to you. See, here's the thing. Nazareth had this reputation. The shortest way I can think of to say it is it was the armpit of Galilee. And Galilee was probably the armpit of that area. This was not a, a place that was well thought of. As a matter of fact, uh, the prophesi- prophecies that uh, talk about when Jesus comes, um, some of them are fulfilled by the very fact that he grew up in Nazareth. That, um, the area, uh, Naphtali there, it says that, that into this darkness shone a great light. That was how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy back in the Old Testament. Nazareth was known as a dark place, a, a, a foul place, a place where corruption reigned. Into that darkness shone this great light. My, my thinking is this. If you're still an unbeliever because you don't feel like you're good enough or you're... Uh, You're worthy. Jesus is the friend of sinners. I learned this week. Do you know where the phrase he grew up on the wrong side of the tracks comes from? Interesting. I didn't know this, that uh, as they were building railroads through towns, um, some people were very happy. Most people were very happy, but there were some people that weren't so happy because depending on which way the wind blew, you would get the soot. You get all of the, the nasty junk on your side of town. So some people found suddenly that they were living on the wrong side of the tracks, the dark, the nasty, the not so desirable parts of town. So you could easily say, look, Jesus grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Nazareth, right? He was a friend of sinners and he is a friend of sinners. So my question is, non-believer, what prevents you? Now, I want to spend the rest of time talking to Christians, believers. I hope that's most of you. I hope that's all of you. The chances are it's just most of you. The, the question becomes a little bit different now for you and for me. Have you made room for him in your Christmas season <laughs> of all seasons? Isn't that weird? But the time that we set aside perhaps the least for him, the time that we can be so tempted to forget him is during this season. And if not, let me ask you, what prevents you? Hopefully, you know what I mean, like you've made room for him to save you, right? You've made room for him to take away your sins. You've even made room for him to call the shots of your life. But have you made room in your day to day, in your minute by minute, in your t- day timer, in your scheduler, all of it. Have you made room for him? What prevents you? Probably the, the biggest first answer pro- from many people this morning would be busyness. It's like, I'm just 
so busy. Just so many things to do. Well, I want to show you from from the scripture here, from the Christmas story to consider the wise men. Now, in my experience, it may be yours as well. If you look around and you, you go, okay, that person to me strikes me as wise. They they just they they're pretty smart. They're, they've got it together. They're wise. Aren't those the people in general that seem to be have the opportunity, at least to be very, very busy? I mean, if you have this thing called wisdom, people are going to be coming to you and looking for direction from you, all those kind of things. There's the wise person is useful in so many ways. So many people recognize that that opportunities abound. Right. So in that framework, the wise men come to Jesus. Turn with me um, to Matthew, chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then we're going to see in verses two through eight. We, we won't go there now, but um, just to summarize it quickly for you. Herod called them into his office. The wise men, right? They're on a mission. <clears throat> they start asking around. Herod gets wind of it. He knows about this prophecy, this uh, competing king. And he says, hey, uh, I want to talk with you guys. When you find this king, maybe you could let me know and I could come and worship him, too. Right. So that's going on. These wise men, though, verse nine, when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, my point is, is very simple. It shouldn't be hard to, to grasp. These guys were wise enough to take time to worship him. Matter of fact, you could easily say they went well out of their way. They went out of their way literally to just bring him an offering. Let me ask you, let me ask myself when we tend to look at our day and go, I just don't have time to spend time with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Let me ask you, do you think any of these these wise men now, 2000 years later, look back at that time and went, man, I had that office meeting I should have gone to. I should have done this or I should have done that. No, they took the time to come and worship this child king in that podunk town. Right. And as the saying goes, wise men still seek him. Wise men still worship him. They still bring him their best gifts. Now, what's your best gift? We've talked about it. One thing is to present yourself to him. Right. I think in practical terms for me, if I was looking for an application for this morning, what if for the next few days, especially, I mean, always would be great, but let's just focus on the next few days. What if we gave him the best part of our day before all the chaos broke loose? We, get, we came and we worshipped the king. We gave him the best part of the part of the day. I'd suggest, I hope that we would be wise men and women. That we take that time to bring him a gift. OK, here's another idea. What about. Christian, maybe the thing that is keeping you from 
drawing him in or, or allowing him into your uh, your life the way that he wants to be would be this. What about political unrest or political uncertainty? Anybody familiar with that at all? We looked again last week at the idea of being winsome citizens. Right. But there's, there's always that that possibility, that fear of what in the world is going on, what, what's going on to where um, we're not sure what rights we might have in the next few years or whatever it might be. Here's my question. Are you failing to worship the king of heaven because you're stressed out about politics down here? If that's you, I want to speak to you. There's really good news. God is in control. And I want to show you from the, the scriptures, from the, uh, the Christmas story. We see it all over the Christmas story. Look um, just at the, pre- the next verses. Verse 12 says, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So. Herod, the king, had his plans, but God seemed to work out a way that the wise men wouldn't give away the location. And he seemed to be able to work out a way that the Jesus, the baby Jesus, right, the, the child Jesus could, would flee to Egypt. You. You might say that God had the whole thing under control. In case that's not enough evidence for you, Luke 2, where we began this morning, you guys remember that it said Quirinius declared that all of the world would be taxed or that would be counted. How much power do you have to have to go? All right, here's the deal. We're going to count the whole world. As, I mean, as best we know it. OK, so just send out the word, make everybody go wherever they need to go. We're going to get this done. How powerful do you have to be to say that to the world? And what do we see? We see Joseph and Mary making a very strenuous, long ride, about 90 miles. Um, Mary probably was on a donkey um, with uh, with the, the rugged terrain, all of that stuff. All of it's going on because one guy says, hey, let's make this happen. How powerful do you have to be? What kind of grumbling would maybe you be doing as you're making that walk? Right. But as you you back out of the picture and you see it with a wide angle, you're like, oh, wait a second. God was moving them from there to there that the prophecy might be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Amazing that really, when you look at it, the king who thought he was doing his own will was really just a pawn in the hand of Almighty God. So if it's political unrest or uncertainty that's keeping you from worshiping him, from allowing him in, what's your story now? Next, could it be economic downturn or poverty? Anyone? Awesome. Same as last last uh, service. Everybody here is apparently really wealthy and you're all good to go. <laughs> If by chance some of you didn't raise your hand and you're, you are affected by the economy. And you're feeling. You're like, you know, how are we going to make ends meet all of that stuff? And that's what's kind of stripping the joy out of this season for you. Let me let me remind you, it's that baby in that manger who knows poverty. 
I mean, he was the king of all creation. But the moment that he arrived on this earth, he, he understood poverty. Born in a manger, uh, laid his cradle as a feeding trough, right? His delivery room, a stable. And all his life, as you go through, you see that this man, Jesus, had really nothing that he could call his own, <laughs> although everything was his. But you, you look and you go, wait, this this person really can relate with me. Think about it. He was born from a borrowed womb. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He had to borrow from a fish to pay his taxes. He had to borrow from a young boy to feed multitudes. He even had to borrow a donkey for Palm Sunday, his big entrance. He borrowed a grave from that rich man, but just for a little bit. Right? One tomb slightly used. Jesus said, Luke 9:58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he created it all. Amazing. Again, Philippians 2 is is turning out to be uh, over the years, just my all time favorite portion of scripture right now. That he, he gave up his glorious throne from heaven, all of the things that were privileged, uh, that he was privileged to, to have and to own and to, to create. And the Bible says that he became poor, that we might be rich. So if it's economic downturn, poverty that tells you that you have no room for him this Christmas season. That doesn't make sense now. Because he gets that he understands that. So what is it that prevents you? Well, the list can go on and on. Um, I'm going to move a little more quickly now, I think. Perhaps it's, it's your own feelings of inadequacy or insignificance or loneliness. Don't raise your hand, but if that's you, if it's like, you know what? I'm just, I feel particularly lonely or unimportant during these times. These holiday times are tough. Can I remind you once again, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, literally born in a barn. He, he grew up in Nazareth, a hick town, a bean town, right? The wrong side of the tracks. Mary and Joseph would totally also understand that feeling of insignificance. I mean, imagine showing up to the place where you're sent by the senses because that's where your, your kin are, are living. And no one in town having room for you. And you're full term pregnant. That, that's rejection. I get that. And what about the shepherds, though? If you had to pick a, a lonely occupation, wouldn't it be that? But the angels came and delivered the message of Christmas to those very shepherds. He gave them the same message that I would give to you. If you're feeling insignificant, uh, unworthy or, um, you know, just unimportant. Same message to the, to the shepherds. God thought so much of you that he gave the most precious possible gift, his one and only son. Right. It's not under the tree, but on the tree. Next, maybe it's fear or worry. This one, I'm going to go ahead and have you raise your hand. Close your eyes real quick. Raise your hand. If for you, this time is difficult because of whether it's financial or health or whatever, you're facing fear or worry. Let me see your hands. OK. Thank you. Thank you. You can close or open your eyes. 
Just a little little scripture study for you guys. Do a study, just a Christmas study on the words fear not. You'll see them all over the Christmas story. The words to Mary when the angel first came and said, I've got a mission for you. <laughs> fear not. The words to Joseph when he was about to, to put her away. He's like, I love her, but I don't want to have her be subjected to all this shame. So I'm just going to quietly divorce her. Angel comes and says to Joseph, fear not. There's a lot of stuff maybe ahead of you, but fear not. We've got this all under control. And what about again to the angels? Fear not. Maybe that's his personal message to you this morning. Okay, just a few more. Maybe it's just difficult circumstances. Well, number one, I'd say come back for our messages in First Peter. It's all about having joy in difficult circumstances. But maybe it's rejection. Again, consider Mary, that long trip, rejected at the end. And yet, matter of fact, how many people tried to, you, you actually tried to uh, live out last week's message about being a winsome citizen? Okay. If you did and you met with measured success, you maybe even had some rejection. Maybe put yourself in the spot of Mary, who out of rejection, she bore Jesus into the world. Okay, there's, that's part of the Christmas story. And lastly, <clears throat> maybe for you, the reason that Christmas is so difficult is not because of any of those other things, but because of sadness. Just somebody you miss or a tragedy of some kind. Matthew 2, again, is so odd to, to look at this, this story and, and hear about these, these babies being murdered. It's like, doesn't seem to go. Why in the world would, would you certainly wouldn't include it in a, in a fairy tale. But why would God allow it to be included in this story? I think it's this. Again, it was into this very kind of world where the darkness is so deep that Jesus chose to come. He didn't have to come, but he chose to come so that when you're facing sadness, tragedy, all of those things, it's into that exact world that Jesus chose to come. I, want, I wanted to close with uh, John chapter one, verse 14. If you're with us through the gospel of John. You remember this verse. It's a pivotal verse for John and his perspective. It kind of encapsulates a whole bunch of things. John chapter one, verse 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Let me break that down for you real quick. John one fourteen. the word became flesh. What is flesh? It's the soft substance that's. Vulnerable, right? It covers the bones, permeated with blood. It's bruisable, right? The word became flesh. Well, and then it says and dwelt. That word is tabernacled. Literally means like to pitch a tent. Uh, the tabernacle uh, for all of the old, most of the Old Testament was this temporary thing, right? That they would carry around with them. It was a tent. So Literally, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled or pitched his tent. 
here with us. Now, how would you describe, how many of you like, love camping? Okay, not me. This is the way I would describe a tent. A temporary, vulnerable dwelling place with relatively few amenities. Now, I don't like the tent. I don't like to tent. I don't like to camp. Prefer my air conditioning or my heat maybe this morning. But what if you invited me to go camping? And I said, I would love that. If you knew what I, how I feel about camping and my amenities, what would that tell you? That I really like you. <laughs> Philippians 2 says that Jesus in heaven made the conscious decision to humble himself, to give up all of the amenities, to dwell in the, on this earth uh, as a temporary vulnerable person made of vulnerable flesh. Matter of fact, so vulnerable, he came as a baby. With relatively few amenities, to me that tells me that he loves you. If you're, if you're dealing with any of these things that we've spoken this morning, Look at that, that gift for you in the manger. God who was willing to be clothed in that temporary vulnerable dwelling place with so few amenities to give you, even in the sadness, the, the, the knowledge that he's with you. God with us. So that's it. That's all I got. What prevents you from having the best Christmas you've ever had? By asking him in, by if for if for the very first time asking him into your heart this morning, or if you've known him for years and years, what prevents you from having the sweetest fellowship, the sweetest time as you worship the King? Let's pray, Lord. We love you. We thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to do all things, or that you are able to to save the soul from death. We ask, Lord, that you'd uh, continue to to make your presence known. And so that you'd be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so that you'd help us to, to make application this morning, Lord, um, to put away any other distractions, any thoughts that would keep us from really enjoying your presence this morning. Thank you for all the things you brought out. I pray that your richest blessings. And I ask, Lord, that you'd help, help us now uh, as the, the wise men came and they worshipped you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.